This week on Inside Motorsport, we take a look at a new book out at the moment, The Commentators with Michael Chavello. I hope you'll stay with us. Well, Michael, it's great to have you on the show, and I guess everyone who might have been a little bit underutilised during lockdown has managed to put out some very interesting books, and your new book, I think, took a bit longer than just a lockdown to get it all up and running, looking at 100 years of sports commentary. Thank you, Craig. I appreciate it, mate, and uh, thanks for chatting to me today. You know, it was it was a tremendously um, uh, entertaining project to put together, uh, and the, the book took quite a while to write. And it wasn't initially based on 100 years of sports commentary. That was a fact that I actually stumbled across during my research in writing a book on sports commentary when I discovered that on April 11, 1921, was the first time live sports commentary was ever performed. And it was by a bloke called Florent Gibson, who was a newspaper journalist for the Pittsburgh Post. And he did live commentary on KDKA Radio, which which was the radio station out of Pennsylvania who had the first ever commercial radio license in the USA. And he commentated a boxing fight between Johnny Dundee and Johnny Ray, a featherweight contest. And thus, uh, I found out that exactly 100 years ago, the profession that I call the the soundtrack of our lives was actually born. Here we are at Wembley that great annual festival, Football Association Cup Final. The description, as usual, is being broadcast to you by Mr. George F. Allison, and here is Mr. Allison alongside me. The preliminaries are over, and what an ideal afternoon for football. There goes the whistle, and now we're off. The ball has been sent over from the sitter to Jones, who's banged it down the field to McLean. Square six. A clever tackle by Brown, and McLean is beaten. Still in square four. four to he has thrown it to Thornwell, who dashes forward. He slips the ball to the middle. Ross Kemp seizes on it. A short dash through. Here's a great chance. He's Back shot. Four again. Mercer, the Huddersfield goalkeeper's caught the ball, but Ross Kemp rushes on. Ross Kemp has bundled Mercer and the ball to the net. It's a goal to Blackburn Rovers in well under a minute. Joe, what a sensational start. And in that time, there's been a remarkable amount of change in what a commentator's role is. There's been an in- introduction of a specialist commentator where an ex-player provide an, a different type of insight. Did you find there was one standard style to commentating all sports or is there a very niche way everything is done? I think that it's it's the way that sports are commentated is very formulaic in that traditionally the system is one play-by-play announcer and one specialist announcer. Um, so the play-by-play guy is pretty much commentating what you see and the specialist commentator or the analyst is commentating why you are seeing this or how it's being done. And that sort of chemistry has been around for, for, you know, for almost the full duration of the last century. And really nothing has changed in that aspect. What what has changed more so over the years has been uh, the technology involved with sports commentary. But dating right back to the 1920s and early 1930s, and as you mentioned, the bringing in of the, the co-commentator, the specialist, the former player, the expert, that really hasn't changed over the years. 
we have sports that you're involved in, like the mixed martial arts. Where do you draw your inspiration on when you're commentating those events? My original inspiration came from my love of pro wrestling as a kid. I remember in 1985, man, I even remember the, the, the date. It was March 9, 1985, sitting in my living room, and my mum saying to me, there's something on TV tonight you might be interested in. And she said, it's, it's called WrestleMania. And I go, what? WrestleMania? Because I'd heard about it in the school ground. And she let me stay up late to watch this event beamed in from a, a magical faraway place called Madison Square Garden in New York. And I heard the voice, this beautiful, magical, foghorn voice of a commentator called Gorilla Monsoon. And it's like, hello, everybody. Welcome to Madison Square Garden and the greatest extravaganza of all time, WrestleMania. Welcome, everyone. Gorilla Monsoon here at ringside with my colleague, Jesse the Body Ventura, as the World Wrestling Federation presents the wrestling extravaganza of all time, WrestleMania. Enjoy it, folks. And right now, let's go up to our ring announcer, Howard Finkel. And I fell in love. And Gorilla Monsoon, to this day, is still my favorite commentator and has been the inspiration for my commentary. Certainly, I've met so many of them over the last almost 30 years that does not lift their inspiration from a particular commentator in their past, whether it be from wrestling or boxing or motorsports or horse racing, football, cricket, whatever it may be, every commentator has a source of inspiration and mine was Gorilla Monsoon. The Commentators is the name of the book, and you've looked at 60 specific best moments in sporting history and look at why they are so iconic. Well, that's right. And you know what? Unfortunately, Craig, I couldn't fit in more. You know, uh, I actually still have on my computer and on my hard drives at least another 40 pages of notes of other sports events that I couldn't fit in this book. So maybe it begs a second volume somewhere down the line. But so many sports are covered in there from darts to motor racing to football to cricket to rugby to Super Bowl to the Olympic Games and, and, and track and field. And really, if you're a sports fan, I believe there is something in the book for everyone because your favorite commentators are in there and your favorite sporting moments. Ian Smith is out, bold Trevor Chapel for four, eight down for 229. And New Zealand's only hope now is a six off the last ball for a tie. Long discussion. Well, it looks to me as if they're going to bow underarm off the last ball. Rod Marsh is saying no, mate, but I'm sure he's going to bow an underarm delivery on the last ball and bow it along the ground and be sure that it has not been hit for six. The umpires have been told. The batsmen have been told, and this is possibly a little bit disappointing. Let's make sure it is an underarm, but I've got the feeling. It's a big ex-Victorian skipper. We're going to bowl an underarm. We have believed it. And that's a disappointing finish. Disappointed Brian McKechnie, the crowd boom. And it's all over. After 50 overs... New Zealand, 8 for 229. 
Well, that's disappointing. Now, everyone around Australia will have their uh, own ideas on that, and uh, we always get letters and phone calls about different things that happen, so I don't expect anyone to agree with me. Uh, I don't expect uh, that you'll get more than 50% agreement on anything. Let me just tell you what I think about it. I think it was a disgraceful performance from a captain who got his sums wrong today, and I think it should never be permitted to happen again. We keep reading and hearing that the players are under a lot of pressure and that they're tired and jaded and perhaps their judgment and their skill is blunted. Well, uh, perhaps they might advance that as an excuse for what happened out there today. Not with me, they don't. I think it was a very poor performance. One of the worst things I have ever seen done on a cricket field. Good night. And you know, Craig, a lot of us, we, we all experience what I call in the book starburst memories. We remember where we were and what we were doing when we saw or heard something that becomes uh, etched into our brains forever. It's like the same way that our parents always remember where they were when JFK got assassinated. I remember where I was and what I was doing when I heard that Princess Diana had passed away. And it's the same impact that a, a, a sports event can have. Um, I think back to the starburst memories of sports events and I think back to the 1990 World Cup of watching Roberto Baggio score a goal against Czechoslovakia. It was four o'clock in the morning in Melbourne. I'm a teenager. I'm drinking coffee. I'm sitting on the couch with my father cheering this goal on and I'm hearing the great English commentator Alan Parry with his accompanying commentary to this goal and still to this day, I can walk my brain through that entire scene of watching that goal and hear Alan Parry's voice in my head. And this is one of the beauties of sport and the beauties of, uh, of the power of sports commentary to provide us with those starburst memories. Giannini, Baggio. And still Baggio. And he's taking them all on. That's a fantastic goal. For our motorsport fans, Murray Walker, of course, the legend of Formula One commentary, is highlighted in your writings. Oh, I think when when you when when you think of Formula One, you think of no one else but Murray Walker. I mean, some commentators are so synonymous with the sport they call that it's difficult to imagine not hearing their voice. Three lights, four lights, five laps. Senna is trying to go through on the inside and it's happened immediately. This is amazing. Senna goes off at the first corner. But what has happened to Frost? He has gone off too. Well, that is amazing, but I fear absolutely predictable. I'm talking, uh, you know, Martin Tyler for soccer, Richie Benno for cricket. And Peter Taylor to come on. Okay, we're still inside the 15 overs. This is brave tactics from Border. Uh, I don't mind uh, sticking my neck out as much as Border. I reckon this is brilliant. And brilliant captaincy by Alan Border. Well bowled Peter Taylor, but brilliant captaincy by Alan Border has swung this game to Australia. Sid Waddell for Dart. Double pen! Double from Claycross champion in 79 does it again in 87 what a match uh, Jim Ross or Grilla Monsoon for pro wrestling 
Well, Murray Walker is the guy we associate, the voice we associate with Formula One. And in the book, I talk about his memorable, memorable call of the 1996 uh, Japanese Grand Prix when Damon Hill secured the world championship. And it's famous for that, that, that line of Murray Walker's where he got very emotional given his personal connection to, uh, to Damon Hill when he pretty much said, I've got to stop commentating because I've got a lot heard it live. It also brought tears to our eyes because it was almost like breaking that, that, that fourth emotion to the fan at home. He was almost stepping out of his, uh, his objective uh, shoes and socks as a commentator and plugging himself into a moment in history and immersing us into his set of feelings. And I thought it was, it was genius commentary because it was so personal. And any Formula One fan around the world will never forget that commentary from Murray. Amongst his many brilliant commentaries, for me, that was the one that stood out the most and is the reason why I highlighted it in the book. This is something that many people didn't think could possibly happen today. They thought Damon would drive a cautious race, but he fought. He fought from second on the grid. He passed Jack Villeneuve. He took the lead. He stayed there. And Damon Hill exits the chicane and wins the Japanese Grand Prix. And I've got to stop because I've got a lump in my throat. Michael Schumacher passes Damon Hill, but too late. Damon Hill wins in Japan. I really am, for once, almost at a loss for words. I'm, I'm so happy, as the majority of Britain will be. I must confess I have a very soft spot for Damon, and it has been magnified as a result of his achievements here. It is an amazing piece of work that you've done, the commentators, available now for just twenty nine ninety nine at most good bookstores and online. It has not just looked at English language. It's not just looked at radio. It's tried to encompass from the early days, as you mentioned, of radio, right up now to online media and online commentary in the world. So you have uh, well, also highlighted things... Yeah where uh, it might be an international, an FAA, IFA, FIFA World Cup, in fact. This is something that was really important to me, Craig, writing the book. I was aware that there were so many good non-English language uh, broadcasts, commentaries, commentators out there that I needed to share some of them in the book. These are legendary commentaries, but because they're not in English, they don't get the praise they deserve. Bjorg Lillian's commentary of Norway's win against England in the 1980 World Cup qualifier. The famous Maggie Thatcher, can you hear me, commentary. Lord Nelson, Lord Babybrook, Sir Winston Churchill, Sir Anthony Eden, Clement Attlee, Henry Cooper, Lady Diana. We have slot them all together. We have slot them all together. Maggie Thatcher, can you hear me? Maggie Thatcher, we have a budskap for you midt under valkampen. We have a budskap for you. We have slot England out. Av världens mästerskap i fotboll, Maggie Thatcher. Om de, som de säger på ditt språk, i boxbarn runt Madison Square Garden i New York. 
Your boys took a hell of a beating. Your boys took a hell of a beating. Feldberg i Thatcher. Norge har slått England i fotball. Vi er best i verden. Ferje Dalby, vær så god. You know, there was the commentary of Dennis Bergkamp's goal in the 1998 World Cup where the commentator went absolutely into a meltdown like no other, but it was all done in Dutch. Nederland gaat in de halve finale komen. Ik heb opeens zo'n gevoel dat we in de halve finale gaan komen met de balbezit voor Frank de Boer. Frank de Boer speelt de bal heel goed naar Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp! Dennis Bergkamp neemt de bal aan! Dennis Bergkamp! Dennis Bergkamp! Dennis Bergkamp! Dennis Bergkamp! Dennis Bergkamp! Frank de Boer speelt de bal naar Dennis Bergkamp! Die neemt de bal feilloos aan! En ik schiet de bal erin! We spelen nog officieel 20 seconden! Dennis Bergkamp! You know, there's the famous Chinese commentator's comments after Australia was beaten by Italy in the 2006 World Cup over in Germany. And these commentaries all needed a mention in the book because they are an important part of the history of sports broadcasting and uh, to deny them their place in the book and deny them their place against all these other tremendous English language commentaries uh, would just be, uh, you know, very disappointing. So I'm glad I, I got them all in there. We see such a diverse range of commentary styles. Richie Benno famously, the less said the better. Let the pitchers do the talking. But then you have the guys, particularly from America and radio, where it is so critical that it's where is the ball and to paint that picture of how the ball is moving around the field at any particular time. I have the most respect for radio commentators. Past 25 years I've been a TV commentator, but radio commentary is a whole different set of skills because they do not have you know, vision. So they have to paint the picture for us to be able to decorate the canvas in our minds and give so much attention to detail, not only the play-by-play, but when no play is happening, the detailed analysis. The, the uh, Richie Benno, as you mentioned, was an expert at not just detailing what we saw, but also what he was seeing to an audience who, who may have been blind to it. The way he could describe birds chirping, the way he could describe the Mexican wave going around the ground, the way he could describe the, the, the atmosphere in the stadium, the way that fans were acting towards a particular ball or a particular strike. And, and you go through the history of commentators and you find guys like, you know, Vin Scully was another one. Vin Scully, who was the, the, the LA Dodgers uh, radio announcer for 67 years and arguably the greatest sports commentator of all time and a contributor to the book at 93 years old. I mean, you, you go on YouTube and look up his commentary of Sandy Koufax's perfect game against the Cubs in, in 1965, and you will find an example of perfection in commentary. Three times in his sensational career has Sandy Koufax walked out to the mound 
to pitch a fateful ninth where he turned in a no-hitter. But tonight, September the 9th, 1965, he made the toughest walk of his career, I'm sure, because through eight innings, he has pitched a perfect game. He has struck out 11. He has retired 24 consecutive batters. And the first man he will look at is catcher Chris Cruz, big right-hand hitter. Fly to center, grounded to short. Dick Trususki is now at second base, and Koufax ready and delivers. Curve ball for a strike. Oh, and one to count to Chris Cruz. Out on deck to pinch hit is one of the men we mentioned earlier as a possible Joey Amalfitano. Here's the strike one pitch to Cruz. Fastball swung on and missed. Strike two. And you can almost taste the pressure now. Koufax lifted his cap, ran his fingers through his black hair, then pulled the cap back down, fussing at the bill. Cruz must feel it too as he backs out, heaves a sigh, took off his helmet, put it back on, and steps back up to the plate. Trususki is over to his right to fill up the middle. Kennedy is deep to guard the line. The strike two pitch on the way. Fastball outside, ball one. Krug started to go after it and held up, and Torborg held the ball high in the air, trying to convince Vargo, but Eddie said, no, sir. One and two, the count to Chris Krug. It is 9.41 p.m. on September the 9th. The one-two pitch on the way. Curveball, tap foul, off to the left of the plate. The Dodgers defensively. In this spine-tingling moment, Sandy Koufax and Jeff Torborg. The boys who will try and stop anything hit their way. Wes Parker, Dick Trususki, Maury Wills, and John Kennedy. The outfield of Lou Johnson, Willie Davis, and Ron Fairley. And there's a 29,000 people in the ballpark and a million butterflies. 29,139 paid. Koufax into his windup and the one-two pitch. Fastball foul back out of play. In the Dodger dugout, Al Ferrara gets up and walks down near the runway. And it begins to get tough to be a teammate and sit in the dugout and have to watch. Sandy, back of the rubber, now toes it. All the boys in the bullpen straining to get a better look as they look through the wire fence in left field. One and two, the count to Chris Krug. Koufax, feet together, now to his wind-up in the one-two pitch. Fastball outside, ball two. A lot of people in the ballpark now are starting to see the pitches with their heart. The pitch was outside. Torborg tried to pull it over the plate, but Vargo, an experienced umpire, wouldn't go for it. Two and two, the count to Chris Cruz. Sandy reading signs into his windup 2-2 two, two pitch. Fastball got him swinging. Sandy Koufax has struck out 12. He is two outs away from a perfect game. Here is Joe Amalfitano to pinch it for Don Kessinger. Amalfitano is from Southern California, from San Pedro. He was an original bonus boy with the Giants. Joey's been around, and as we mentioned earlier, he has helped to beat the Dodgers twice, and on deck is Harvey Keene. 
Kennedy is tight to the bag at third. The fastball a strike. Oh, and one with one out in the ninth inning, one to nothing, Dodgers. Sandy reading into his windup and the strike one pitch. Curveball, tap foul. Oh, and two. And Amalfitano walks away and shakes himself a little bit and swings the bat. And Koufax with a new ball takes a hitch at his belt and walks behind the mound. I would think that the mound at Dodger Stadium right now is the loneliest place in the world. Looks in to get his sign. 0 and 2 to Amalfitano. The strike two pitch to Joe. Fastball swung on and missed. Strike three. He is one out away from the promised land. And Harvey Keene is coming up. So Harvey Keene is batting for Bob Henley. The time on the scoreboard is 9.44. The date, September the 9th, 1965. And Koufax working on veteran Harvey Keene. Sandy into his windup. And the pitch, a fastball for a strike. He has struck out, by the way, five consecutive batters. And that's gone unnoticed. Sandy ready in the strike one pitch. Very high, and he lost his hat. He really forced that one. That's only the second time tonight where I have had the feeling that Sandy threw instead of pitched, trying to get that little extra. And that time, he tried so hard, his hat fell off, he took an extremely long stride to the plate, and Torborg had to go up to get it. One and one to Harvey Keene. Now he's ready. Fastball high, ball two. You can't blame a man for pushing just a little bit now. Sandy backs off, mops his forehead, runs his left index finger along his forehead, dries it off on his left pants leg. All the while, Keene just waiting. Now Sandy looks in. Into his windup and the 2-1 pitch to Keene. Swung on and missed. Strike two. It is 9.46 p.m. Two and two to Harvey Keene. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed a perfect game. And indeed, Craig, that is the only example that I put in the book of utterly flawless commentary. It was perfect. Eight minutes and 45 seconds long, 1,064 words on live radio of modern poetry in the form of sports commentary. So you're right. There are so many different styles, and that's what makes commentary an art form, not just a profession. You know, art form, what is art? Art is artistic expression. And the fact that every commentator expresses themselves differently and you never hear the same piece of commentary twice because you never see the exact same sporting match twice or sporting moment twice makes it that, you know, is the reason why sports commentary is an art and these are modern-day artists 
painting and, and stippling their masterpieces. Really cement themselves. Virtual beautiful to Bruce. Bruce thinking about it and then kicks to centre half forward. Neat looking to go. Oh, yes! Sinu takes a special and goes bang! It's a beautiful thing! Murray Walker, of course, famously started calling Formula One on the radio and then transitioned to TV. Have you found many commentators that are particularly good at swapping between the two different disciplines? There have been many, and from an Aussie perspective, one that I'd like to mention is Tim Lane. I mean, for years we heard Tim Lane commentate cricket on radio on the ABC, and the ABC commentators have a very strict uh, standard they need to follow. And I guess it's sort of like a jack-of-all-trades standard. You know, an ABC commentator is trained to commentate any sport. And Tim Lane was one of those guys. But to see and hear Tim transition from radio to television, and he he famously did an article many years ago, uh, I remember him writing it, about the difficulties inherent in commentating on television as opposed to commentating on radio. Whereas you may think it's the other way around, that radio would be far more difficult than television. Well, Tim was of the opinion that television was obviously was, was actually harder than radio. But here's one of the guys that made the transition seamlessly and effectively and, and was brilliant on, on, on both mediums. I loved Alan McGilvray broadcasting the cricket on the ABC because he had a beautiful voice that connected with the, the product, which was the cricket. Uh, and I've often said that, uh, and you know, I don't think this is just the, the misty-eyed view of one from that time a long time ago, but um, I don't think I've ever heard anybody, any sports broadcaster anywhere in the world, really, who's captured the sound of his or her sport, the way in which McGilvray did with cricket. There was just that beautiful, flowing, summer, Saturday afternoon feel to it across a green ground, you know, that um, that caught the essence of, of cricket. But most commentators are. I think if you're a good commentator worth your, you know, worth your weight, uh, you can switch between radio and television quite comfortably. Football fans, Martin Tyler has had a, a very long and distinguished career, particularly in Australia, we hear him with the English Premier League. But there was a long, long time that the English Premier League on television and radio was only ever called by the one person who had to captivate the audience for the entire length of the game. Well, with players like David Beckham, you do feel there are certain moments of destiny. Arguably the most recognisable footballer in the world. Yes! Yes for England! David Beckham has done it big time! Well, yeah, Martin Tyler was the voice of my childhood for soccer, and he still is. You know, he still is the voice of soccer as far as I'm concerned. He's the doyen. And Peter Drury, who I believe is the best soccer commentator on the planet right now, uh, and he's a contributor for the book. Well, when I asked Peter about Martin Tyler, he said nobody is more wedded to the sport they commentate than Martin Tyler. Martin still has the same passion and enthusiasm now even though he's in his, what is it, in his 70s, that he did 30, 40 years ago. I mean, I remember growing up watching the World Cup 1990, 1994, 86, you know, listening to Martin Tyler. The man is just ageless. And he does come from a different era, like you said, Craig, where it traditionally was just a single commentator and no no co-commentator next to them. 
But even in more recent times, I mean, you go back to 2012 and maybe Martin's most famous commentary of all, which I talk extensively about from the book, when Sergio Aguero scored the goal for Man City that won them the EPL. I mean, that's, that's, that's timeless. It's finished at Sunderland. Manchester United have done all they can. That Rooney goal was enough for the three points. Manchester City are still alive here. Balotelli, Aguero! hang that on a museum wall as one of the great commentaries of all time. And certainly if you were going to put together a museum, a hall of fame of great commentators, Martin Tyler would be one of the first inductees. The breadth of knowledge you now have on sports commentary, it must be incredible what you are able now to draw on in your own work. It really is. And I'm, I'm appreciative for that. I learned a lot researching this and it is helping my own commentary career. And as of uh, a couple of weeks ago, I'm excited to say that Emerson College in Boston, USA, which is one of the most prestigious universities, uh, private universities in America, is using my book, The Commentators, officially as part of their syllabus for their advanced sports broadcasting class. And just this week, I was asked by their professor to guest lecture the students in that class. And this gives me the greatest joy because I feel that I've written a book that aspiring commentators and professional current working commentators can get a lot out of and improve their careers with. And, you know, Emerson picking up the book and making it mandatory reading for their students just proves that point. And, uh, you know, you, I, I do suggest, Craig, that when, 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 when your listeners buy the book, you've got to accompany your reading with YouTube. It is the best way to read this book, and it's what everyone is saying. Read the portion about the commentary, read the words of the commentator, then dog ear the page, go on YouTube, look up the commentary and listen to it. And this is the way you will most appreciate and get the most out of the book. You said you've still got probably another 60 moments that you couldn't fit into this book. Was there a very, very difficult thing to stop having an Australian bias, if you like, to the book and to make sure that you were not leaving out something uh, that you might not be as familiar with over Jezelinko, you beauty. I didn't think he was going to play it, Mike. It was spot on. Okay. To the wing position on the member stand side. Oh, Jezelinko, you beauty! I'll be totally honest with you. There were publishers I knocked back good publishers I knocked back and said no to, which is rare for an author to do because usually authors are begging for a good publisher to take on their book. But I had very reputable publishers come to me and say, we want this book to be more Aussie. We want more cricket. We want more NRL. We want more Aussie rules football. We want more AFL. And I said, no, I said, sorry, thanks, but no thanks. This book is not right for you because sports commentary is not, 
an Australian-owned profession. It's a global profession. And we as global sports fans, not uh, you know, not parochial fans of just AFL or, or, or NRL, we need to appreciate sports commentators from all over the world and give them this voice, give them this platform for their work to be realised. So I'm glad that at the end, Wilkinson Publishing said, you know what, we like that global approach to the book. We like that you've featured sports from you know Europe, from the USA, from Canada, from South America, and commentators from all over, New Zealand, South Africa, beyond, not just Australians. And it was really important to me, Craig, and you know, I'm glad that Wilkinson came to the party with that. And uh, they've actually had calls from some of the publishers that I said no to um, who, who, who are kind of regretting it right now that they wanted to put a parochial Australian spin on it. So let's talk about your journey. Most of the names in the book all talk about the fact that one day they were doing something and someone said, sit in front of that microphone and just talk about it for us. Was that your entry or did you have a goal in mind? I did not have a goal in mind. My entry was 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 something like that. So Craig, when I was growing up, all I ever wanted to be was an architect. I loved drawing houses, designing houses, everything about architecture I enjoyed. And when it came year 10, high school, 15 years old, I wrote away for work experience, as you do, to 20 architecture firms across Melbourne. Strangely, none of them replied, not even with a no, just no one replied. I remember standing by the mailbox at the front of my house crying to my mother, saying, mum, what am I going to do? No architecture firms have written back to me. And get this, Craig, my mum said to me out of nowhere, God knows where she got it from. She said, Michael, you've got a good voice. Why don't you do radio? And to this day, I can't explain where that came from, how my mum possibly thought I had a good voice. But you know what? No architecture firms were writing back to me. And to placate my mum, I rode away to Triple M Radio because I listened to them at the time. And they wrote back to me, Craig, within two weeks. And I still have the letter. And it's dated serendipitously, April 10, 1990, my birthday. They accepted me for a week's work experience. So I went to Triple M and the work experience lady looked me up and down and uh, she said, what do you want to do in radio? And I said, well, I don't. And I'm thinking to myself, I still want to be an architect. And she said, I've, I've got a good feeling about you, Michael. I'm going to stick you in the newsroom with our journalists. So I go inside this little newsroom and there's a bloke there we may know reporting on sport. His name was Eddie Maguire. Another guy there called Steve Speziali. Another guy called uh, Brian Johnson. And another reporter there called Nicole Gunn. Nicole's still around, God bless her. And Craig, as soon as I saw these people at work and I saw the microphones jutting out of the walls and I saw the old slug machines with their carts and I looked through the glass and I saw Richard Stubbs talking to all of Melbourne live on air, I fell in love with broadcasting. I fell in love with media and it's all I wanted to do for my career and all thoughts of being an architect completely went away. You've now been heard in more than 150, which isn't bad because there's only 180 what two in the United Nations. And you have uh, won multiple awards from all around the world. What has been your highlight? It's a good question. And it's a question that is hard to answer because, as you said, commentating in over 150 countries and 
to 100, over 150 countries and traveling and working in 27 different countries. I've enjoyed every moment of it. But I think commentating the Olympic Games 2008, I've got a whole chapter on commentating the Olympics in the book with some marvelous stories from some, from some veteran Olympic commentators. And for anyone in sports, the Olympic Games is the pinnacle. It's the peak of Everest. It's what every athlete and every commentator aspires to be a part of. And to have on my resume and be able to tell my young sons, your dad commentated the Olympics, and they even gave us commentators in 2008 a medal of participation that is something very unique. It's something we, we only have. I mean, that's my Olympic medal. And doing that in Beijing, having that experience, commentating Deontay Wilder when he was you know, an unknown amateur, commentating Vasil Lomachenko when he was an unknown amateur. Uh, it's still the highlight of my career to this day. Very hard work commentating, I think it was 232 fights in 11 days on my own. Tremendously hard work, but certainly the greatest commentary experience of my career. You're still based out of Melbourne, even though you're working worldwide. Yeah, you know, I was based in the USA for seven years, living in Las Vegas. In fact, my oldest son was born in Las Vegas. He's a little American citizen. Uh, I was working for Mark Cuban's Access TV network over there. Relocated back to Australia in 2017, and now I bounce around Asia all the time. Uh, I've been traveling all throughout the pandemic. And in fact, over the last year exactly, I've spent 16 weeks, four months of my life in hotel quarantine uh, going back and forth around Asia. But, uh, you know, it, it's the lifestyle I've known for so many years since I began traveling internationally to commentate in, in 2001, so 20 years now. And uh, it's something, a lifestyle I've become used to, uh, living out of a suitcase. It's a lifestyle my, my wife and my kids have never known any different from, and uh, I, I really enjoy it. And that's one of the things about being a commentator, Craig, is that you've got to accept that you've got to go where the sport is and you've got to go where the work is. And the fact is that most sports are global. And even if you're doing a local sport like the AFL uh, or the NRL, you're still going to travel weekly interstate. So traveling is just part and parcel of being a commentator and uh, you get used to it. And uh, as long as you enjoy it, you keep on going. From the Singapore Indoor Stadium, this magnificent auditorium that has played host to the likes of David Bowie, Coldplay and the Black Eyed Peas tonight plays host to the biggest event in Muay Thai history. Welcome to the finale of the Contender Asia. Hi, I'm Michael Chevello and welcome to The Voice Versus. I'm here in Los Angeles in the beautiful Pacific Palisades. The Voice, Michael Chevello ringside with Sugar Ray Seppo and we are joined by South Africa's Mike Bernardo. Mike, it's great to have you here ringside at the Budokan. Thank you very much. Dana White, thank you for joining me on The Voice Versus. It's an absolute pleasure. Same here. Stone Cold Steve Austin, thanks for joining me on The Voice Versus. Sugar Ray Leonard, welcome to The Voice Versus. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. Well, thank you. Thank Thank you so so much. much. You're the big kibosh! The ticking time bomb's exploded! Good night, Irene! The book is The Commentators. Michael Chevello joining us here on the show, and I'd like to thank you for your time. It is available online and uh, plenty of good bookstores around the country now. Craig, thank you so much, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. 
Big hello to all the racing fans, the motorsports fans out there, and I really hope you enjoyed the book. Thank you, Craig. Thanks very much for your time, Michael Chavello, joining us here on Inside Motorsport. That's all your time for this edition of the show. Till next time around, keep smiling and bye for now. Inside Motorsport is produced by Thunder Media for the Community Radio Network.